everybody. Welcome to the 61st episode of our news podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the Journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate, where you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate as well. And we will head into the news. All right, we're going to get started off here in the situation in the South Caucasus right now. Now that the war is over, of course, between Azerbaijan and the ethnic Armenian populated Republic of Artsakh, the unrecognized Republic of Artsakh, there is speculation that Azerbaijan is seeking to spark another conflict in the region. Azerbaijan's parliament recently held a hearing, actually this past week, on the, quote, return to West Azerbaijan. West Azerbaijan is a region of Iran that borders Azerbaijan's Nakhchivan exclave and the nation of Turkey as well. And this is not the first time that Azeri politicians have brought this up. Also, Azeri officials have been discussing the possibility of capturing Armenia's Sunik province, which is the land that separates Nakhchivan, the exclave, and Nagorno-Karabakh, which is now under full Azerbaijani control. In the past, President Ilham Aliyev of Azerbaijan has claimed that this land belongs to his country, saying that West Zangazor, the Azerbaijani name for the territory, was, quote, unfairly separated from Azerbaijan by the Soviet Union. Aliyev has been making his views clear recently. He has also been making noise about a land connection between Nakhchivan and the rest of the country. Again, remember, Nakhchivan is an exclave. And land connection would have to go through Armenian land, and he has not yet ruled out using force to establish such a connection. Azeri troops are already placed in some parts of Armenia in violation of the 2020 ceasefire. We will keep you guys up to date on that if anything occurs. Also, fearing Azerbaijani rule and possible acts of genocide against them, tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians have fled Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia, and actually should correct myself because of as of Friday afternoon, at least 100,000 have fled the region. The population of Artsakh was about 120,000 before the war, so not a whole lot of people left in the region, and most of those um, that have not yet made it into Armenia are on their way. Videos on social media show the line of cars on the Latchkin Corridor leaving the region was almost 100 kilometers long. So obviously the journey to get to Armenia takes people multiple days. Artak's former human rights ombudsman Artak Begla-Ryan claims that only a few hundred people actually remain in Artak right now and are not on the road. Most of those people are state officials, volunteers, and emergency services personnel. As I was saying, pretty much everybody who's not yet made it to Armenia is making the journey currently. It's a long trip. 2,000 years of Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh is effectively coming to an end. Laura Savoyan, who lived in the village of Vagujas, claimed that Azeri soldiers entered the village and forced everybody to leave at gunpoint. So if true, that counters the claims that 
Azerbaijan was just willing to let all the Armenians stay there, which I don't think anyone actually believed that. Uh, Ruben Vardamyan, who is an Armenian billionaire and former state minister of Artsakh, was recently arrested by Azerbaijani authorities while he was trying to flee into Armenia. In an interview with The Guardian the week prior to his arrest, he said that he knew he may be a target for arrest by Azerbaijan. He has since been charged with financing terrorism, participating in the formation of armed groups, and residing in Azerbaijan without authorization. He also claimed that Azerbaijan has a blacklist of Artsakh authorities that it plans to arrest. Uh, David Kilmovich, who is the former Minister of Foreign Affairs for Artsakh, says that he is on the list and he plans to actually turn himself in to Azeri authorities to avoid further conflict. Artsakh authorities are currently engaging in search operations in villages around the territory to recover the bodies of dead soldiers and civilians. Many of Artsakh's defense forces have surrendered their arms to Azerbaijan. Azeri troops have allegedly rounded up 125 vehicles, 60 artillery pieces, 226 anti-air systems, 22 armored vehicles, 425,000 rounds of ammunition, and 1,105 small arms and grenades. Azerbaijan claims that 192 of its troops were killed during the operation. 180 of those were for the army and 12 were from the interior ministry. At least 511 troops were wounded as well on about 24 hours of combat. Videos of war crimes being committed by Azeri troops have already begun to surface. One video shows, again, instead of once, I'll say it again, don't let your kids listen to this. If they're listening, pause it, turn it off now, whatever. One video shows an Azeri soldier cutting off the ears of an Armenian prisoner of war who, of course, died. Another shows an Azeri cutting the throat of a still-alive Armenian soldier. Ethnic Armenian soldier, I should say. So, yeah, everybody expected this. So I don't think anybody, anybody should uh, be surprised about this at all. This is just what they do. Azerbaijani troops have captured the village of Vank, as well as the Gantazar Monastery in the village. That was actually built in the year 1240, and they have also established full control over Martikert. I know we spoke about that city last week, and there was rumors that the people were going to stay and fight, but that did not metastasize. On the 26th, the fuel depot outside of Stepanakart, the regional capital, exploded while hundreds of people were filling up their vehicles before leaving the region. Again, we've talked about this uh, blockade that happened before the operation. You know, it went on for nine months before the operation started starving people of, you know, food, water, but there was no gas in the region as well. So all these people that are fleeing, well, they need gas for their cars before they can move anywhere, right? So uh, I know Russian peacekeepers and Armenian authorities as such have been bringing in gas to try and get these people help so they could leave at least 125 people were killed in that explosion. Hundreds were hospitalized and some do still remain missing. The hospital in Stepanakar was overfilled with patients at the time, and it was also lacking supplies at the time because of the nine-month blockade. Thankfully, they received help from Russian peacekeepers and the Armenian government as well. Azerbaijani police have already entered Stepanakart and are conducting patrols of the nearly empty city, so they basically have effective control over it. On the 28th, President Semvel Sharamanyan signed a decree dissolving the Republic of Artsakh. That decree will officially take place on January 1st, 2024. But as we've been saying, effectively, it doesn't exist anymore.
Uh, but the president is saying that he will personally remain in the region while search and rescue operations are ongoing for civilians and soldiers in remote areas. And last story for this, on the 30th, Azerbaijan claimed that one of its soldiers was killed by an Armenian sniper, not an Artsakh sniper, an Armenian sniper. The approximate area of where this incident allegedly happened is in an area of Armenia proper that Azeri troops seized in May 2021 and have remained since. Armenia denies the allegations, saying they don't correspond with reality. Moving on to the Russo-Ukrainian war last week, we actually missed this. At least two Ukrainian-UK donated Storm Shadow missiles struck the headquarters building of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol, Crimea. Ukraine's special operations forces claimed responsibility for the attack, which is named Operation Crab Trap, and claimed that it killed 34 Russian officers. That claim has not been verified. They also claimed that among the dead was Admiral Viktor Sokolov, the commander of the Black Sea Fleet. That was later proven to be false since he has been seen publicly at least once since the claim of his death, maybe even twice. The other instance, it happened on the same day that this strike happened. He was awarding uh, some Russian Marines for operations in Ukraine, and it wasn't really clear if that award ceremony took place before or after the attack. We just really don't know, but we do know he is still alive. Among those allegedly wounded were Colonel General Alexander Romanchuk, the commander of Russian troops in Zaporizhia, and his chief of staff, Lieutenant General Oleg Sukhov, neither of those have been confirmed. At this moment, we really don't know who exactly was killed and wounded in this attack. Russia only claims one was wounded and one person is missing. I find that hard to believe because both these missiles hit the headquarters in broad daylight. Um, but again, can't really verify Ukraine's claims as well. One of them has been proven false. We just really don't know. The head of Kharkiv Defense Forces, Serhii, Melnyuk says that Russia destroyed 90% of Ukraine's 302nd anti-air regiment, including its command post within the first hours of the invasion last year. The regiment was in charge of air defense for all of Kharkiv Oblast. He says that Russia was able to strike the regiment's command post because they were placed in the same exact locations that command posts were placed in during the Soviet era. That's how the Russians knew where they were. Moving on, the UK will apparently begin deploying troops to Ukraine soon, according to the new British Defense Minister Grant Shapps. Shapps says that he has been planning with army leaders on moving the UK-led training program of Ukrainian forces to Ukrainian soil instead of using NATO facilities. British troops deploying to the country will be taking part in the training mission. Of course, they will not be taking part in combat. During an interview with the Telegraph, Shapps says uh, he also called on UK defense companies to set up factories in Ukraine. So that is an interesting update. I know a lot of you had something to say about that. I'll leave it there. Moving on to Ireland, members of the Irish Army Ranger Wing made the largest drug bust in the country's history. The MV Matthew, a Panamanian registered ship, was raided by the force and was discovered to be carrying 2,253 kilograms of cocaine. The drugs were valued at 165 million U.S. dollars, and the 25 crew members on board were arrested. Irish officials say that the drugs originated from a South American drug cartel, which had some sort of agreement with an Irish criminal group, but it did not specify which groups may be involved in this incident. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific, looking at North Korea on the 27th, the Supreme People's Assembly, which is 
North Korea's alleged parliament amended the country's constitution to enshrine its policy on nuclear force. Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un pledged to accelerate the production of nuclear weapons and accused the United States of provocation. Also, North Korea released U.S. Army Private Second Class Travis King. They actually deported him, and he is now back in U.S. custody. King crossed into North Korea illegally while on a guided tour of the demilitarized zone, the effective border between North and South Korea. In July, we covered that when it happened. King was set to fly back to the U.S. that day in order to face disciplinary action. It isn't clear why North Korea decided to deport him to the South. Moving on to Central Asia in the Middle East, looking at Uzbekistan. On the 28th, there was an explosion at a customs warehouse at the airport in Tashkent, the country's capital. Preliminary reports believe that the explosion may have been caused by batteries for electric cars, but no official cause has yet been listed. There's still an ongoing investigation. Multiple buildings were damaged. One person was killed and 162 others were injured. People were working in that warehouse at the time. Looking at Saudi Arabia, Reuters is claiming that Saudi Arabia is seeking a defense pact with the United States in exchange for the kingdom establishing ties with Israel. That pact would mandate the U.S. comes to Saudi Arabia's defense in the event that it is attacked. Reuters believes that the U.S. might sweeten the deal by designating Saudi Arabia a major non-NATO ally, a designation that is already given to Israel. One main motivation for striking this deal could be that Biden could want this as a diplomatic victory before the 2024 elections, just as Trump did for similar regional deals in the 2020 election. Palestinians may get the easing of some Israeli restrictions as part of the deal, but anything they get from that really wouldn't amount to much, and they may not even get anything. We will take a quick break, and we'll be back with Africa. All right, we're back with Africa. We've got a Sudan update. Fighting between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces continues, as you well know. A new UN report claims that at least 1,200 children under the age of five in West Nile state refugee camps have died of measles and starvation from May to December. Those children were all refugees from either Ethiopia or South Sudan. The report assesses that thousands of other children are at risk before the year ends. A separate WHO report claims that 70 to 80 percent of hospitals in Sudan that are in areas affected by fighting are not in service, an issue that we have reported on before. Moving on to the Americas, Bulletin from the Borderlands just released on the 1st. We cover El Chapo's son in U.S. federal court and Mexican cartels looking to hire U.S. veterans. Moving on to Brazil, a former advisor of former President Jair Bolsonaro has stuck a plea deal with Brazil's federal police. The advisor has told prosecutors that Bolsonaro planned a military coup after his loss to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Allegations have been made recently against Bolsonaro for the same thing. He allegedly had a decree drafted that would call for new elections, which would not be legal. According to emails found from Lieutenant Colonel Mauro Cid, which was then Bolsonaro's aide-de-camp. The president took the decree draft to a meeting with the heads of Brazil's armed forces and used it to gain their support for a coup. According to those emails, the commander of the Navy was in favor of a military intervention, while the commanders of the Army and Air Force were not. 
Moving on to Canada, while Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was giving an address to the Canadian Parliament, a standing ovation was given to 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka. Hunka was hailed as a hero that fought Russians in the Second World War. The issue is that Hunka was in the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division, a volunteer unit of the Nazi SS that was made up of ethnic Ukrainians. The incident sparked outrage in Canada and among Jewish and Polish groups. The division was known as the 1st Ukrainian Division of the Ukrainian National Army or the Galician Division towards the end of the war. The unit carried out a number of war crimes during World War II, including massacres of Poles, Jews, and Slovaks in the region. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau apologized for the incident, saying that the House of Commons was unaware of the details of Hunka's war record. Speaker for the House of Commons, Anthony Rota, has resigned from his position as Speaker as a result of the incident. Hunka is from his district, and Rota was the one that invited him to the event and gave the standing ovation. Rota has accepted full responsibility, but he will remain as a member of Parliament. Moving on to the U.S., we got a presidential race update. These polls are averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 41. That is the same from last week. His disapproval is at 54. That is down one. Trump's favorability is at 41. That remains the same from last week. His unfavorability is at 56. That is up one point. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 62%. That is actually down two points from last week. RFK Jr. is at 15. That is up one point. And looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 55, DeSantis is at 13, and Vivek Ramaswamy is at 7. All three remain the same from last week. Speaking of RFK Jr., there is wide speculation that he is gearing up to run against both Biden and Trump as an independent. RFK has long been claiming that the Democratic primary has been rigged against him and the party shows no real interest for opposition against Biden. He said that he is making a major announcement on October 9th. An independent bid by RFK may cause issues for Biden as the former is currently polling at 15% among Democrats. Reuters believes that this could also cause problems for Trump as they claim that more Republicans favor RFK Jr. than Democrats do. Personally, I don't think this will really cause issues for Trump. While some Republicans like RFK, not many of them would vote for him over Trump. That's just my opinion. I have no studies to base that off of. You guys disagree? Feel free to let me know. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Moving on, a Riverside County, California Sheriff's deputy was charged with transporting narcotics and possessing fentanyl for sale. That deputy is Jorge Osagara Rocha, 25 years old. Rocha was arrested on September 17th and has already pleaded not guilty in court in Banning, California. His bail was set at $5 million at the request of the Sheriff's Office, which believes that he is a flight risk due to a possible connection with a Mexican drug cartel. Riverside deputies had been investigating a drug ring when they discovered that Rocha allegedly played a central role in that ring. They began investigating him this month and intercepted some of his phone calls. They found out that he planned on traveling to Victorville to a previously identified drug stash location on September 16th. When he was arrested after making the trip to and back from Banning to Victorville, he was carrying more than 100 pounds of fentanyl in his vehicle, which was about 520,000 pills. That is estimated to be enough fentanyl to kill 2 million people. Prosecutors did not say what cartel they believe Rocha to be linked to. Moving on real quick, the average cost of a gallon of gas in California hit $6.03 over the week. That is nearly $2.20 over the national average. That's fun. 
Moving on, Senator Bob Menendez got an update on him. Elected Democrats are continually calling on the senator to resign from his seat. This includes New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, as well as multiple members of the House, and about 30 of his colleagues in the Senate. Senator John Fetterman, the Democrat from Pennsylvania, even said that he would support a vote to expel Menendez from the Senate, but at this point, it looks like he's really the only one that's calling for that. Menendez responded to calls for his resignation by saying, quote, it is not lost on me how quickly some are rushing to judge a Latino and push him out of his seat. I am not going anywhere, end quote. If you listen to last week's episode, you would remember that Senator Menendez and his wife were both charged with bribery. Moving on, the House had its first hearing in the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden on Thursday. Republicans went over information that we've already covered on the show, so I'm not going to get into that. Democrats tried to make the inquiry about Trump, of course, in the aftermath of the 2020 election. We didn't really learn anything new in the hearing, but we did learn some new things before the hearing last week. Documents released by the House Ways and Means Committee obtained from IRS whistleblowers Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler shows that Assistant U.S. Attorney for Delaware Leslie Wolf ordered FBI and IRS investigators in a FARA probe to remove all references to Joe Biden from a search warrant targeting Hunter. FARA is the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Joe Biden at this time in August 2020 was, of course, the Democratic candidate for president. We have also spoken about the whistleblowers, Farah and Leslie Wolf, in previous episodes. We also learned last week that Hunter Biden received multiple wire transfers totaling over $250,000 in the summer of 2019 that originated from Beijing, China. The address listed as the beneficiary of funds was the address of Joe Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. At that time, Hunter Biden did not live in Wilmington, Delaware. Instead, he lived in California at his own admission in his memoirs. Republicans have been highlighting these transfers by referring back to a text from Hunter that he sent to his daughter Naomi in 2019, in which he told her that he had to fork over half his salary to his father. And that's really all we got as far as Hunter Biden goes. And the last story of the week, on the 28th, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, the Democrat from California, passed away at her Washington, D.C. home. The 90-year-old senator began serving in the Senate from 1992 and previously was the mayor of San Francisco just before that. It is not clear who Gavin Newsom will choose to see out the end of the term. A number of candidates are already running for the seat in 2024. That includes representatives Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee. But Newsom says that he will not choose anybody that's currently running to get the seat in 2024. So we will keep you guys up to date on that whenever he chooses a replacement. That is all I have for you guys. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this on your favorite podcast apps, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate is all one word. We are also on Telegram as well. Same name. Please consider supporting us on Patreon again, patreon.com slash Analyze Educate or at Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash Analyze Educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you used to listen to this podcast, and I will see you guys soon.